Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to Second uh, Samuel chapter 19. If you're new with us, uh, we prefer to preach uh, expositionally here. That is, we preach through a book of the Bible, kind of section by section, so that we can understand it within its context. Sometimes we're taking smaller bits, especially if we're in an epistle or uh, a genre that favors that. But sometimes we take larger sections. Uh, especially when we're in things like Old Testament narrative. So you'll notice that we uh, would take a whole chapter of chapter 19 today so we can see how it kind of holds together and learn uh, in the big picture of the narrative. One of the wonderful things is that as we study the, uh, the people of God as they lived under the kingdom of God uh, in these ancient times, we're able to see a very similar parallel to us as the people of God living with our reigning Christ who reigns in heaven as our king and, uh, and learn from those parallels. We do sometimes preach topically and look at different topics and what the scripture has to say, but we prefer to preach expositionally. So we're up to chapter 19 in the book of Second Samuel. As Christians, our whole lives are shaped by the returns of Jesus Christ. And you heard me right there. I said the returns, plural. I don't know if you realize it, but there are three returns of Jesus shown in Scripture that shape our lives. The first return is the return of his resurrection. Before Jesus died, he told his disciples that he would come again And he did, three days later, when he rose from the dead. And and it changed everything. It meant that he indeed had conquered death. It meant that he really had bought their forgiveness and redemption like he promised. And that his promise of resurrection life for them was real. The first return of Jesus and his resurrection gives us this same hope and joy today. Because he returned from the dead, we can have life. But then we also had his second return. Anybody remember, you know when his second return was? When would Jesus return the second time? What well, was the return in his spirit? After 40 days of, his, uh, of being here, after the resurrection and teaching, he ascended to heaven, but he promised he would not leave his disciples alone. And then he returned to them by his spirit to live in them. At Pentecost, he returned and he empowered them to live as his people. This is a return that, as believers, we all know today, as he's filled us with his Spirit, and He is with us always. He is our source of comfort and strength by His Spirit. He is closer to us today than He was when He walked this earth with His disciples. And He's closer to us than He was to them because He lives in us. Now, of course, there is one final return, isn't there? His return at the end of history. It's the one that hasn't happened yet. In the book of Revelation, it's called his unveiling. It's when he comes back and reveals that he is 
and has been reigning in heaven ever since his resurrection. And he will come to judge the world and to put things right and to save his people. This is what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come. His final return. When we will all receive the outcome of our faith, the fullness of the salvation of our souls, according to 1 Peter 1.9. This is the reality we should be living in light of every day. His ultimate final return. He's coming back to judge and to save. It should shape us. It should affect our hearts and our attitudes and our actions every day his final return. And I want to ask you, is this true of you? Is Jesus' ultimate return, and if you're unsure, or you're not sure what this should even look like in your life, then you should take a look at this text with me today. You see, this story, to put it simply, is about the return of God's Savior King, to his people. King David returning to his people. All throughout this book, we have seen how King David's life foreshadows the ultimate king, King Jesus' life. We recently saw how when David was rejected by his people and and chased out of Jerusalem, we saw how he crossed the, the river Kidron and went across the valley and went up the Mount of Olives, literally pre-tracing the exact steps of Jesus as it was rejected 2,000 years later. He took that exact, Jesus took that exact route to the cross. But in this text, this morning, we see David's return as king. He has defeated his enemy and he's returning victorious to his people. And the whole text, that's why we took the whole chapter, the whole text is about how these different people respond in light of his return. We see them coming to him, and we see where their hearts are at in light of his return. And I think it's instructive for us I think we're supposed to examine ourselves as we see each of these responses to David and his interaction with them. We are to think of our own lives as we wait for Jesus, as we live in light of his return. And the first response that we see here is the response of Joab. Look at verse 1, and let's just read that part again. I'm going to put my glasses on here. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day that was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. 
Joab, the commander of David's armies, is not happy as David returns in victory. Because David is, is mourning his son. Here his armies had gone out and risked their lives to, to, to take out this treacherous son, Absalom, who had led a rebellion, a coup against his father, David, and David is weeping over his death rather than celebrating with his servants in victory. And Joab just feels this is wrong. This is unjust. Absalom deserved what he got. He shouldn't be mourned. And David's men should be rewarded, not made to feel ashamed that, they, that maybe they did something wrong. For him, the king's return, for Joab, the king's return should mean justice for his enemies and reward for his people. End of story. But David is mourning Absalom, his enemy, but his, his very son. He's mourning his death. Now, I have to say, at a gut level, when I first read this, I resonated with Joab's sentiment. I mean, Absalom was a terrible person and an even worse son. If he had had his way, he would have taken David's life in a second. He really seems like an irredeemable character. So I, I feel like, yeah, good riddance. David, party with your men, your soldiers. Look what they did for you. They deserve it. There's really no place for sorrow for Absalom. This is how I tend to think uh, when I contemplate even our Savior's return. Right? You think about Jesus coming back, and I think finally, justice. The men, enemies of God judged Things made right. And his faithful servants, i.e. myself, right? Rewarded and celebrating. I don't think of sorrowing and mourning when the king returns. But what we must see here is that this, this is a false dichotomy to, to think this way. This is very obvious when we notice Joab's over-exaggerated language here. Look at verse 6 again. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Is that true? No, it's an exaggerated half-truth. Yes, David does love those who hate him. That's true. He loved Absalom. And he mourned him. But does he hate those who love him? Does he hate his faithful servants? No, he loves them as well. That's why at the end of this, this first paragraph, this first scene here, we see David listening to Joab in a sense and gathering the people back to him. Look at verse 8. Then the king arose, took his seat at the gate, and the people were told, Behold, 
The king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. There's no, there's no mention here of, of any words, but it's this scene of the people coming to their king. It, it, it's a scene of, of reunification. You can sort of see the, uh, feel the camera panning up as the crowds of faithful come before their king and are reunited with them. The king's love expands beyond the faithful, even to his enemies, even to his lost children. And he mourns as he celebrates with his people. It reminds me of Jesus as he looked over Jerusalem on the night before his horrible rejection at the hands of his own people. He looks over Jerusalem and he loves them. Oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you would not. He loved them. My friends, as, as we live in light of the king's, our king's return, expectantly waiting on his justice and reward, we need to have hearts filled with sorrowful love for this world for the lust we must must not be hardened just hoping they're all going to get what's coming because after all they deserve it we must mourn and weep I think of Jesus standing with his disciples his servants in Matthew 9 39 and looking out over the last lost crowds and it says he, he, he's hurt in his gut it's the word he has compassion for them he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. But the fields are ripe for harvest, he says. So pray earnestly for laborers. This is what he said to his disciples. Does Jesus' return make your hearts sorrow for the world? Does his return motivate you to gospel work? If it doesn't, if all you can think about is justice and your reward, kind of like Joab, why is that? Is it because you've forgotten that you were once them? And in a way, really still are. That's the irony of this scene. Joab, the one who's been repeatedly disobedient to King David, even earlier, earlier murdering Abner destroying the peace David had negotiated with Israel, he's demanding justice and reward. Like he and those with him were entitled to it. We must not forget who we are, forgiven rebel sinners. We need to mourn. As we think of our Savior, our King's return, now, in this next section, in verses 9 to 15 in the text, the camera moves from the scene in, in Mahanaim, where, where David, the city he was in as he was in exile, and pans out to give us a picture of what is going on in all of Israel as the news of David's victorious return spreads. Look at verse, uh, verse 9 and read with me. 
Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The people are arguing here. We're, we're kind of getting one side of the argument, but they're arguing. Most of the tribes realize that they had made a mistake in aligning with Absalom. David is returning, and they're like, that was a mistake. But the tribe of Judah, as you read on, seems to be a, a holdout. They are saying nothing. That's why they say here, what? Why, are, why are you saying nothing? Why are you silent? They're referring to Judah. The tribe of Judah seems not to be sure what the best move is here. After all, Absalom's rebellion had been launched from Judah. Who is to say, as David is coming back, that he's not coming back with the intent of some vengeance? And they would get it in the neck first. They're tentative and quiet. I think very nervous. But David does a wise and beautiful thing as we read on. He, he sends word to the tribe of Judah reminding them in verse 12 that he is, he is a bone in flesh with them. Not only are they his tribe, right, but they're his people, the people of God with him. And then he promises to them that he will make a massa, a member of Judah, and also their their kind of military leader, he'll make him leader of his army. He'll, he'll replace Joab with him. Well, t- I'll take your guy and I'll put him in charge of my armies to assure them there's, there's going to be no reprisal. This kind of seals the deal. Look at verse 14. And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man. So that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. They, all of Judah, go down to the Jordan to receive their king back into the land. It's it's a big moment. And now the camera zooms back in. In verse 16, it zooms back in and focuses our attention on another individual's response to the return of the king. Look at verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the Lord. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. Shimei, you remember him? He's back. He's the guy that when David was fleeing Absalom, and his armies were having to march out in shame, Shimei is the guy who was traveling along up on the hillside, throwing rocks at them and cursing David and spreading lies about David. The one that one of David's men said, hey, let's cut his head off. 
And now he's back, but he's in a very different disposition, isn't he? He's come with a, a thousand servants. And he's come to help the king and all his household to cross the Jordan, to do his pleasure. And he falls down before David in verse 19. Look at verse 19. And he said to the king, Let not my Lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, the king. He comes in repentance, turning from his ways, asking that his sin not be held against him. It's a big turnaround. Now, what do you think of his repentance here? What do you think? Pretty convenient. I mean, my natural reaction is cynicism, skepticism. I mean, really? You're a big fake. Shimmy eye. You're just trying to save your skin. David's not going to fall for this. Abishai, he is not buying it. Did you see verse 21? Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? He's not having it at all. This guy's a traitor. Kill him. But David doesn't do, I think, what we feel here. Look at verse 22. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king said, gave him his oath. David doesn't act out of cynicism or out of vengeance or even out of assuming the worst. Why? Because he's naive? Because he's fooled here? No, because he has a heart of generous mercy towards even the least of repentance. The littlest, most flawed, most complicated, seemingly half genuine at best repentance, he takes it. I love this. Gives me a lot of hope. My friends, our King Jesus, who is returning to rule and judge, is open to the littlest kernel of flawed repentance. He has a generous merciful heart that almost seems stupid to us. It's so open and vulnerable and embracing. This is such good news because I'll tell you if salvation wasn't, was dependent on the quality of my repentance I would never be saved. 
course my repentance isn't pure. Of course it's flawed and half-hearted and quite often forced. That's why I keep doing it over and over and over again for the same sins. All our repentance is, is clouded with impure motives and half-hearted excuses, but our gracious king grabs a hold and, and draws us in. When we come with the tiniest bit of impure repentance, if we even look his way, if we lean in his direction, he is there. Maybe Shimei's repentance was just about saving his skin, but that is true of every person who has ever repented out of fear of hell, right? But our Savior King, he will take it. I love Jay, our associate pastor's testimony. He talks about how he went to the post office one day and he found one of those chick tracks that talked all about hell. And it scared him. And he turned to Jesus. Forced, flawed, I'm sure. But our Savior, our King, has a merciless, merciful, generous heart. A heart that will take our repentance as flawed as it is. As we wait for our king, we need to have hearts of sorrow for the world that reach out with the gospel and hearts full of continual repentance, always coming to Jesus. We need to be people that keep repenting. That's what we should learn from this. Keep repenting. Because it's his joy to give us mercy. We need to likewise be people that are receiving others with a generous mercy, shouldn't we? That's not the only guy in this text. We've seen Joab. We've seen now Shimei. And now we get to another character. Verse 24. Let's take a look. And Mephibosheth... The son of Saul came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Again, a character that we've seen before. He's Saul's crippled grandson whom David had, had shown great kindness to when he came to power. Everybody expected the king who came to power to wipe out all other kings, you know, Saul's whole family. But he finds this relative, this crippled grandson, and David is kind to him. He treated him with honor and grace and, and, and gave him his, his father's land and gave him, him a, a permanent invite to his own table to dine. But amazingly, when David had to flee Jerusalem, we saw that Mephibosheth didn't follow. Instead, his, his, his servant Ziba did. 
He left Mephibosheth and, and he followed David, even stealing much of Mephibosheth's wealth and bringing it to David's men. And when he came to David, he reported that Mephibosheth didn't follow David because he thought this was a chance when Absalom was you know, trying to bring this coup, that this was a chance that he might be able to regain some of the prestige and power that, that he had when his father was in charge of the throne. And David was so disturbed by this that he said to Ziba, here, you can have all Mephibosheth's wealth. But here, we actually find out that Ziba's story was a complete lie. David confronts him in verse 25. Mephibosheth says, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth, if you read through, he explains that actually Ziba deceived him. He was supposed to saddle a horse for him so he could follow after David, but instead he, he rode off without him. And Ziba, I mean, and, and, and uh, Mephibosheth, being a cripple, couldn't really just jump on a horse and follow. And then Ziba gave this wealth over to David to ingratiate himself to David, and it worked. The truth is, Mephibosheth had been in a state of mourning since the, the day. David was rejected and cast out. He refused to bathe or wash his garments, identifying with the suffering of his exiled king until his return. If his king was suffering, he would suffer with him. And what I think is so amazing about Mephibosheth is that he doesn't ask here for David's help. He doesn't insist that David make things right for him. He doesn't demand justice and restitution for what had been wrong, he'd been wrongly accused of and the wealth he had lost. No, he, he acknowledges that David had already rewarded him with undeserved favor. And when David offers in verse 29 to take Ziba's land and, and divide it between them. This is what he says. Look at verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. It's amazing. Mephibosheth, his reward, all he wants is to be at home with his king. All he wants is to be with his savior king. That's his reward. My friends, as we live in light of our King Jesus' return, is he our central desire to, to be with him? Is he the reward we are looking forward to? Not wealth or health or good life. Not all the rewards of heaven, but him, knowing him, being with him, being safely home with our king. I think with all the materialism that pervades through our culture and really kind of bleeds out of our veins, are we willing to shed it all if we can just have Jesus? Are we willing to even be identified with his suffering? that we may know him. You see, living in light of our king's return means a heart of sorrow for the world, a heart of repentance in ourselves 
and a heart whose total desire is to be with our King Jesus. But there's one last guy here, one last cameo kind of appearance. This final character, an interesting character that we actually haven't really interacted with before in this book. Look at verse 31 and we see Barzillai. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while, while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Bar- Barzillai is a wealthy old man who took care of David and presumably his men while he was living in exile in Mahanaim. He had given himself over as David's servant, treated him as his king, generously giving over his wealth. And now he's come to help David cross the Jordan back into the land to take his throne. And David says to Barzillai, come with me that I may now provide for you. But Barzillai responds in the most interesting way in verse 34. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can the, your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voices of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with you. Why should the king repay me with such reward? Brazilla is... is well, a wealthy man who took care of David and now he is happy to just help him back to his throne. He says, I'm old, my senses are dull, I can't taste anymore, the delights of such things mean nothing to me. He doesn't want to be a burden He just wants to be of service to help his king home. He has this amazing contentment, doesn't he? With his lot in life and his joy in serving, he needs no other reward. Seems like a pretty good place to be. Content. Content to know his king. Content with his life. He just just wants to go on serving. But he does ask for one thing, a sort of dying wish almost, verse 37. This is what he says. But let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. He, he, he wants to pass on the blessing of his king. He wants Chimham, and, and most commentators think this is probably his son, to receive 
the offer of his King David, the, the blessing that, that he's had, he says, give it to him. The, ro- the reward that means something to Barzillai as he comes to the end of his life is that others would know his reward. The reward he had received. The blessing of knowing and serving the king. It reminds me of when Jesus simply proclaims it's, it's you know, more blessed to give than to receive. It, it's this truth that finds its ultimate fulfillment in the gospel task. My friends, in light of our king's return, Jesus coming back, we are to be a people who find our contentment and joy and reward in giving away and passing on the blessing we have received, the best gift ever, knowing Jesus, serving our true king. An older friend of mine, when I was in uh, sixth grade, he was in college, and he mentored me and shaped me, and he said to me one day, Carrie, what is your goal in life? And before I could answer, he said, mine is to go to heaven, to be with Jesus, and take as many friends with me as I can. He wanted to pass on the king's blessing. He wanted me to do the same. But I have to say, as we close, this isn't easy. In reality, we are easily distracted sinners who lose the plot. And that's what's demonstrated in the last part of our text. In verses 41, I'm and following, I, I, I'll just read the first part of it. It says, And all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers and the men of Judah stolen away and brought the king and his household over to Jordan and David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. They, they, they begin to argue, right? They're arguing about who's got the greater stake in the king. Judah argues more fiercely in the end. Israel's saying, well, we have ten shares, and he belongs to us. Each tribe thinks he's our king, instead of realizing they all belong to him. So they bicker, and they fight. Reminds me just a little bit of the church today. So easily distracted, so easily looking at our own turf forgetting to live in light of our king's return to be people with hearts of sorrow for the world people with hearts of repentance continued repentance in our in ourselves people whose hearts desire is to know their savior king people whose hearts reward is to pass on his blessing to this world Thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this wonderful picture, this ancient picture of of a reality of your people living under your king's rule, being reminded through this Lord that just as David returned, you are returning in victory. 
We pray for that. We look to that with hope. But may we be, may we have your son's heart, your, your heart. May we care for this world. May we want to pass on your gospel. May we live in repentance every day. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.